0: This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. How's it going? Happy are those who dwell in the house of the Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen, it's so good to have you here this morning. We are continuing our series through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out, get them ready. Philippians 1.27 is where we are starting today. And uh, while you are turning there, a couple of quick announcements. One. Our new Being Transformed journals are out in the lobby. Yes, so make sure you pick those up. These are a free gift for those who are part of this church family. And um, it's to help you grow in your love for God's Word. How many honestly would say, since you started doing the Being Transformed journal, that you have fallen more in love with God's Word? Can I see? Can I see anybody? Okay. Um, Also, um, one per person On the journals, I saw some people leaving, like Gus Gus from Cinderella with all the cheese, like all the journals. I'm like, one, one per person. Like they're not for your coworkers at work. They can get a copy online, but these are for the house. Amen? Amen. Okay. And then um, his AM and PM are women's... um, 12-week-long semester Bible study small group start this Tuesday. And if you don't know what that is, uh, it's for all the ladies at the church. There's a uh, two times we meet two sessions. Um, You can pick one or the other. Uh, Tuesday mornings, we meet here from 9 to 1130 AM to do your small group here at the church. And then you can drop your little ones, your preschoolers, off for free children's ministry while you're here doing your small group Bible study. And then for the first time ever, we're having an evening uh, session for the women. We've heard you, like you work or you go to school during the day, but you still want to go through like some type of his 12-week semesterly long thing then you can do that Tuesday night, six to eight, again, right here at the church. You'll come to your group here. Um, There's no childcare for that one, um, but we want you to register, sign up, so we can plan accordingly. So check that out on the app or at newsongpeople.com slash his. All right, let's pray, and then let's get into the word. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are here, Lord, that we're two or three are gathered. You are in our midst. You are here. We're gathered in your name and your nature, and your character, and you're here, and you want to meet with us, and you want to speak to us, Lord. I pray that the word would go forth, and it would melt cold hearts. It would mold our lives, Lord. I pray that the word would go forth, and that it would be consumed, that we would eat the word, God, and it would be to us the joy and the rejoicing of our hearts, Lord. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, Philippians 1-27. It says, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul wrote this, we talked about this last week, chained to a prison guard. And he is encouraging and challenging the church at Philippi that he was actively involved in founding to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, whether I'm right there and I can see it with my own eyes, the fruit of your lives, or whether I'm a thousand miles away and I'm having to wait for second hand news about your lives, he says, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, and I, like Paul, I have the same heart for this church. I identify with Paul. Those of you who find yourself in this church that I was actively involved in founding almost eight years ago, is it eight years ago? We're about to celebrate eight years. I want to invite you to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. When we're here together, and I can see everybody with my own eyes, or we're, we're on a mission trip together, and we're serving shoulder to shoulder at a Serve Saturday, but also when you're in the privacy of your home, also when you're in your math class, when you're at the movies, whatever, at your office, to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is the heart of a shepherd This is a shepherd's heart that we see here in Paul. Those whom God has given spiritual authority to, to lead and to feed the sheep for the good of the body of Christ. This is the heart of a shepherd. Parents, you can probably relate to this you are shepherding the hearts of your children, right? And if you found yourself under a rest, chained to a guard, and you're trying to get a message to your children that you have a, a part in playing in their foundation, just like Paul had a part in playing in the formation of the church, you have a part in playing in the formation of your kids, you can probably relate to this. I hope, I'm sure, I know that you, as a disciple of Jesus, if you're trying to get a message to your children, that you would somewhere... Somewhere in that letter, you would say, hey, sweet child of mine, oh, oh, sweet child of mine, <laughs> live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul's life has been lived this way. It has been lived and formed with the gospel in mind. Someone say gospel. God. Gospel. Now, I am convinced that the church at Philippi had a greater understanding than many believers of the gospel today, a greater understanding of the gospel than many believers have today. And I think that's a problem. And I think you'd agree, because if we are to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, we need to know what the gospel actually is, wouldn't you say? right? If we want to live a life that is formed with the gospel in mind, then we need to make sure that we have the right gospel in mind. So what is the gospel that Jesus proclaims? Do you know? Like if I said, hey, I need you to, right now, I need you to tweet. Do people still tweet? I need you to tweet a definition of the gospel in 280 characters or less. What would you type? Maybe you'd type, "Well, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ." Well, what if somebody replied to your tweet, "Well, what makes it so good?" How would you reply to their reply? That probably depends on what type of gospel that you have subscribed to. If you have subscribed to a conservative gospel, you may say something like, "Well, the gospel is good news because Jesus died on the sin or Jesus died on the cross." and he uh, paid for my sins, and if we will only believe in him, then we get to go to heaven when we die. Yes, Jesus did die on the cross, and he did pay for our sin, but the conservative gospel makes the atonement the whole story. And if we make the atonement the whole story, what happens is people begin to trust in something that Jesus did, not necessarily in who Jesus is. And that's a problem, because if we don't trust in who he is, then we're going to have a hard time obeying what he says. We're going to have a hard time having a relationship with someone that we don't necessarily trust who he is, just in something that he did. If you've subscribed to the American gospel, then you may type something like, well, the gospel is good news because Jesus equals power and comfort and pleasure. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag the A gospel of sin management subscriber may say that the gospel is good news because it helps me to modify my behavior. It helps me to manage my character flaws so that I can be a decent human being. All of these responses fall short. The gospel is more than a ticket to heaven. The gospel is more than a pathway to the American dream. The gospel is more than a Band-Aid for the issues that we face in society. The gospel is more than a tool to help us manage sin. The gospel is actually even more than news. The gospel is an announcement. But what does the gospel announce? Okay, we're gonna look at a couple of verses. I could show you a bunch, but I'm just gonna show you two. What is the gospel? Okay, Mark 1, 14 through 15. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is Jesus. This is Jesus's gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then we see in Acts, this is the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 28, the last verses of the last chapter in Acts. It says, he lived there, this is talking about Paul, for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. He's preaching, he's proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming what? Announcing what? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we see in scripture that the gospel has to do with the announcement of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. John Ortberg says it beautifully. He says, Jesus's gospel is simply this. The kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available for ordinary human beings to live in. It's here, now. You can live in it if you want to. God is present here and now, God is acting. You can revise your plans for living around this cosmic opportunity to daily experience God's favor and God's power. And then N.T. Wright says it like this, gospel is the announcement that everything has changed in the coming of Jesus. Do you believe that, church? That everything has changed in the coming of Jesus, and it leads us to a new kind of living. This is what Paul is talking about, to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's that you believe that everything changed when Jesus showed up. It is a kingdom of God lifestyle with allegiance to a king as the ultimate restorer. Now this idea of the gospel being a proclamation, an announcement, good news, good tidings of great joy, it didn't originate with Jesus, this idea of gospel. In fact, there's actually um, ancient Roman scripts that talk about the gospel good news when a new emperor was set in place, a new regime, a new kingdom, they would have this gospel good news announcement about the person that would be on the throne. Um, Now in the Roman Empire, when a new emperor came to the throne, there would have obviously been a time of uncertainty. It's kinda of like when we go through like those election seasons and everybody's like, what's gonna happen? Oh my gosh, okay, it was like that. Somebody's just died. They're like, is there gonna be chaos? Is society gonna collapse? Are pirates going to rule the seas? Are we going to have food to eat? They'd be worried, they'd be uncertain. But then an announcement, gospel, a proclamation would be made. And it would go something like this, hear ye, hear ye, gather round. We have good news, good tidings of great joy, gospel. We have an emperor, a new emperor, and his name is Romulus the Regal, right? And now we're going to have justice, and now we're going to have peace, and finally we're going to have prosperity. It's like, see, we told you, everybody can calm down. Good news, somebody somebody new is on the throne, and he's going to get the job done this time. Now, Most people in the Roman Empire, they knew that they should not get their hopes up. Like, this is all just hype. They kind of understood that. Just like when we get a new president, because chances are that this new emperor is probably just gonna be like the other dudes before him and do the same things that the other dudes before him did. So they didn't get their hopes up, but the Roman Empire did this whole song and dance anyways, this good news announcement, because it was just tradition. Like, it's just what they did. It was their shtick. The announcement, the good news of a new king coming to the throne was standard. Now, Paul, who was a Roman citizen, he cuts in to this same old song and dance shtick, right? I imagine a girl and she's dancing with somebody who's like boring, not interesting. She's not having a great time, but she's just dancing with them because it's what you do. And then this really handsome, attractive, exciting guy with a beard, he comes up and he... He taps the guy she's dancing with on the shoulder and he's like, can I cut in? Can I have this dance? And the girl's like, "Ah, yeah, kick that guy out of the way. Okay, this is Paul. Paul cuts into the same old song and dance with actual good news, with the announcement that will top all announcements. And here it is, N.T. Wright puts it like this, God is becoming king and he's doing it through Jesus. Therefore, phew, God's justice. God's peace, God's world is going to be renewed. This is the gospel. This is good news. It's the proclamation that Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah is the one true and only Lord of this world, that his kingdom is taking over and that we get to participate in it under his perfect rule, under his perfect reign by putting our faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Now, you may have been taught that the only reason that Jesus came to the earth was to die on the cross, but death on the cross was only part of his mission. His overall mission was to usher in the kingdom of God. And this is good news because, guys, hear me, in God's kingdom, everything is exactly as God wants it to be. Everything is exactly how God wants it to be. John Ortberg in his book, Eternity, is now in session. He says, everything, everything in God's kingdom, that happens, meets with God's approval and delight. The greatest humble themselves like little children. There are no big shots. There are no arrogant egos. No one ever has an anxious thought. Every encounter with people causes them to walk away with more joy than they had before they met. Paul said, the kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This, Jesus said, in his teachings about the kingdom, this, Jesus said, is the kingdom of God, and it exists right now. There are people that you know, that you knew, that you loved, and they loved and put their trust in Jesus, and they are fully immersed in this reality right now. They're fully immersed in this place where everything is exactly as God wants it to be. And then there's the kingdom of the earth. It's filled with violence and there's cancer wards and there's children starving and there's corrupt politicians and depression and anxiety and fear and abuse. Things in the kingdom of the earth are not going so great. Why is this? Like if the kingdom has come, then why are things so sad? Now the easy answer is, well, we live in a fallen world, but there's more to it than that. Okay. The one true king has come. People though, continue to worship lesser kings, lesser lovers. They, they have the idols in their lives of sex, money, and power that they worship. Humans, We're created to worship God and to exercise responsibility in his world. Look at this in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Fill it with what? Fill it with More of my image, more people made in my image, fill it with icons all over, going out all over the earth, icons of my power and of my presence, fill the earth and subdue it. But we forfeited that right through sin. But through the cross, there is forgiveness of sin. And through forgiveness of sin, there is restoration of God's image. And there is a restoration of our holy vocation to fill the earth and fill it with his glory and to subdue it. But instead of receiving this gift of salvation and worshiping the one true God, people reject Jesus. They reject Jesus and they worship idols. Now when worship or when humans worship idols, instead of worshiping God, they miss the mark. They miss the mark, they sin. They miss the mark of their human vocation to bear the image of God and they, and to subdue the earth. And they hand over the power and the authority that Jesus won for us on the cross. They hand that over to the idols that they worship. And those idols use the power that we give them, that human hands hand over to them to tyrannize and to destroy their worshipers and the rest of the world. Now, one day, The kingdoms of the world will be the kingdom of our God. Maranatha, right? Come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, anyone who puts their faith and trust in Christ in Christ crucified can live in God's kingdom right here and right now. This is why worship is so important. It's a battle for the altar. Who are you worshiping? Who are you giving power and authority to to move in your life? Is it the idols of sex, money, power? Or is it the one true and living king? Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of this announcement that the kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available for ordinary human beings to live in. What Paul is trying to do, what I am trying to do this morning is to kindle in this church, to kindle in this church an awareness, an awareness of what? That we belong to another order other than the order that we can see with our own eyes. We belong to another order. He's trying to get them to apply this truth, to live this out, live your life in a manner worthy of this truth. How do we apply such a lofty truth to our everyday life? How do we apply this to the details of our lives? This paragraph written by Dallas Willard, he helped me to understand how to apply this to my life, so I'm gonna read it to you this morning, okay? He says, am I undertaking some task Okay, question, how many of you guys undertake tasks? Nobody in the room has a job, right? Nobody has stuff to do during the day. You guys just lay around, nobody has tasks. How many of you guys undertake tasks? There we go, okay. Um, He says, am I undertaking some task? Then I, in faith, I do it with God, assuming his power to be involved with me. This is the nature of the kingdom. He's here, he's now, he's with me. It's practicing the presence. Whatever I'm doing, he's doing it with me. I'm doing it with him. Is there an emergency in the day that comes up? Well, I will meet it with the knowledge that God is in the midst of it with me and will be calm in a center of intense prayer. Am I disappointed and frustrated? Well, I will rest in the knowledge that God is overall and that he is working out all things working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's being aware that there is another kingdom, that there is another order, and that that kingdom is so close and it is so real and it is so bright and is so worth, it is so worth training our minds to be aware of, so worth trying to feel its nearness and live in its realness. This is gospel, this is good news. But because we are such slaves, to our senses, what we can see and touch and feel and hear and taste. Jesus tells us that we need to pray. He teaches his apprentices to pray, pray like this. We need to pray for more of God's kingdom. Our father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we are praying this, We are essentially praying, God, more of everything, exactly how you want it to be. Start here, Lord. Your kingdom come here in my heart, in my heart, God, more of everything, exactly how you want it to be. In my marriage, God, more of everything, exactly how you want it to be. In my kids' lives, God, more of everything, exactly how you want it to be in this church, in Edmond, in Oklahoma, more of everything, exactly how you want it to be in our our nation, in the world, God, your kingdom come. When Paul implores us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, here's what he's saying. The kingdom of God has become available to you through Jesus, so whatever happens, Keep living your lives based on this reality, based on the reality of the greatest announcement of all time. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Your life, your life, your life, your years, your months, your weeks, your days, your minutes, your moments, lived, formed with the gospel in mind. Live your life formed with the gospel in mind. And Paul says to do this, we're going to need something. Not intelligence, not money, not popularity. He says you're going to need humility. Someone say "Humility." humility. Look at this in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. He says, do nothing, he's continuing his thought about living life in a manner worthy of the kingdom. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Okay, here's the thing, a life worthy of the kingdom is here and now announcement. A life formed with the gospel in mind is a life dripping with humility. What is humility? If you're taking notes, you may wanna write down some of these thoughts. It's renouncing self-centered pursuits. Renouncing self-centered pursuits. It is actively regarding others in the best light possible. Humility is paying attention to the concerns and interests of others. I've heard it said like this, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Like I'm just a loser and I'm a nobody and I don't matter. It's not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. Now this is interesting. The Greeks did not even have a word for humility. They didn't have a word for it. That's how foreign this concept was. The word for humility was coined when the church was birthed. That's pretty cool, right? But stay humble about it, okay? Stay humble about it. Some people even speculated that this word humility was invented by Paul himself. Paul. Humility is the most foundational virtue in the kingdom. Think about it. We receive Christ in humility. And then Paul says over in Colossians 2.6, as we received Christ so walk in him. We received him in humility. Now we need to walk in him in humility. To live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, we need to be people whose hearts and minds are directed away from ourselves and toward others in the practice of attentive, humble service. Now, how many know this is not our default setting? Like our hearts and minds are directed toward ourselves from the moment that we come into the world. And if you don't believe me, ask your mom. (laughs) Ask your mom. When you made your debut, right, you took your first breath, you were not in the least bit actively concerned for your mother's interest in a shower or in sleep. You were, not in, you were not concerned. All you were interested in was your comfort and your satisfaction, right? So, so this is not our default setting, which means there's some renovating of our hearts and of our minds that needs, needs to take place if we're gonna be people who actually walk in humility. We also need to understand that we're not gonna just drift into humility. We're not just gonna wake up one day and be like, oh, I'm humble. Like it just, it's here. I'm humble. That's not how it works. Okay, Paul continuing his thought, he says in Philippians 2.5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Notice the word let there, indicating that this is a choice. You can let it be in you or you cannot let it be in you. You can allow it to be in you or you cannot allow it to be in you. But he says, if you want to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, I suggest you let it be. You let it be. You let it be. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now, I think sometimes we hear that and we're like, just kind of, whoa, like, you, know, you can't even wrap your mind around the mind of Christ being in you. Now, the mind, I think this helps us wrap our mind around it. The mind is referring to our thoughts and our feelings. So what Paul is saying is let the same thoughts and feelings that were in Christ be in you. The same thoughts, the same feelings, the same mindset, the same attitude. Why? Because what you think and what you feel will determine how you act. What you think and what you feel is going to determine how you act. So if you keep acting selfishly and you think it's just a behavior problem, it's not just a behavior problem, it's a mindset problem. It's a thoughts and feelings problem. You are spending too much time thinking about yourself and your feelings and how you feel and what you need and that causes you to act selfishly. It's a mind problem. If you're thinking about God and filling your mind with him and his kingdom, you're gonna begin to act on what you're thinking about. You're risen with Christ. Seek the things that are above, right? Above, above, not here, okay? Okay, then Paul, he gives us insight into the mind, the thoughts and the feelings of Christ. He gives us the most beautiful, the most supreme example of humility. And in this, we not only see how we can walk in humility, but we see the place where humility is found. It's found in Christ who is our life. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. This is why we are to abide in him and to remain in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we cannot have his mind. Apart from him, we cannot have this humility. So we not only see how we do it, but we see that it's only found in him, in him, okay? So we see this is how his mind worked. And because we belong to him, we are his beloved, our mind can and should work in the same way. Now, what we're about to read has been called a masterpiece of compressed biblical theology, One can only stand in awe at the combination of insight and expression that could encapsulate so much in a mere 76 Greek words. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet, to stand in awe at the mind of Christ, at the thoughts and feelings of the Supreme Savior, Christ Jesus. And to not let this just roll over you because you've heard it several times, but to really give this your attention, your thought, your focus. This is the mind of our Savior. It says in verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue Confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen? You can be seated. Now, the first half of this poem is describing Jesus' refusal to cling to or exploit his status for his own benefit. This is not how emperors in Paul's day thought or felt, (laughs) this is not their mind. This is not their attitude. N.T. Wright says, his self-emptying, his humility, his obedience to the divine plan, even though it meant his own cruel and shameful death, all of this, all of this is the complete opposite of normal human behavior. All of this is the complete opposite of normal imperial behavior. I want you to understand today, church, that the greatest display of humility that the world has ever known is the incarnation of Christ Jesus, Christ becoming man. It's the greatest display of humility the world has ever known. What makes it the greatest display of humility? Okay, we're gonna get into some biblical theology here, okay? What makes it so great? We need to understand this. Jesus existed from before time began. He was in the form of God. He is God, was in the form of God before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ, the son of God, he's co-equal and he is co-eternal with God, the father. The divine perfections that belong to God, the father, they also eternally belonged to the son but he didn't cling to his rights as God. He didn't think of equality with God as something to be grasped. He chose to obey the Father. He emptied himself. Now we, we have to understand this wasn't like a trade. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He wasn't like, here, you take all the God stuff and I'll take all the human stuff. No, he kept all of the God stuff and he added all of the human stuff and he didn't empty himself of his deity. He actually laid aside his privileges, which were some pretty... Amazing privileges, all knowing, all powerful, omnipresent, all places at all times. He laid that aside to take on the limitations of humanity, which are some pretty big limitations. Limited knowledge, limited power, and being limited to one place at a time just like us. He wanted to fully identify with humanity. He voluntarily chose not to exercise all of his rights as God during his earthly life. He remained fully God and he became fully man. From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. This is our God. He got sleepy he grew tired. He grew hungry. He grew thirsty. His body got achy. He was tempted like we were tempted and he remained sinless. Our God walked the earth. He walked the earth. He came not just as a man, but as a bond servant, meaning he had no life of his own apart from the will of the master, the will of his father. Jesus served more totally than any other servant who has ever lived. There was no lower position for Jesus to occupy. And then he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to death, but not just any death. He became obedient to death on a cross, which was the most humiliating way to die. He humbled himself. Charles Spurgeon says, blessed be his name. He stoops. And stoops and stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes man, he stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. No one has ever humbled himself more than Jesus. No one. No one ever started so high and descended so low. No one, somebody needs to hear this, it will set you free from entitlement, bitterness, and resentment. No one has given up as much as Jesus gave up. This is our king. This is our king. And this is how we're to live a life worthy of his kingdom. Let the same mind, the thoughts and feelings be in you that were in Christ Jesus. So Jesus shows us that humble hearts, are directed away from self and toward others in a practice of attentive and humble service. So I wanna give you some thoughts as we close on how to cultivate a humble heart. Okay, I've got three things. The first one is calculate one another. Calculate one another. Now, usually when somebody is referring to somebody else as calculated, it's like in a negative connotation, like she's cold and calculated, but it also can have a positive side. Philippians 2, 3, we read it earlier, let's read it again. It says, "Do nothing." From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count. Someone say count. Count. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, this word that Paul uses for count, it is from the ancient world of mathematics. And don't tune me out like you're not a math person. Like my daughter's teacher says, everybody can be a math person. You just need to understand, okay? You can be a math person, okay? It means to calculate. This word count, it means to calculate. So Paul is saying we need to calculate one another as more important than ourselves. How do we do that? How do we do this calculation? Okay, we, Here's a formula. Okay, We add up one another's needs. Okay? I see a person, see their needs, I add up their needs. Okay, And then I subtract my personal interest and what's left, the sum, is what would be most beneficial to others. This is how we calculate. This is how we calculate others more significant than ourselves. Okay, so let me give you a real world example of this. Okay, This week on Wednesday, we start our next semester of Embrace Grace, which is a ministry that is um, to help women who are going through unexpected pregnancies. Single woman going through unexpected pregnancies. I'm telling you, we have had 40 women reach out. Like, it's overwhelming. It's like, what, 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 like... You know, they changed the laws here in Oklahoma. And like, yeah, anyway, 40, 40 women who are interested in being a part of Embrace Grace. And then this semester, we're also launching Embrace Life, which is like the follow-up chapter um, that, that is for the girls after they finish Embrace Grace. Then they can go through this curriculum for single moms. And so we have a need for childcare on Wednesday nights because the mamas come, they have babies, and we want to provide a place where their kids can be loved and ministered to, and they can go through the curriculum. So we have a need: childcare, two hours every Wednesday night for 12 weeks. Okay, so you start to calculate this need. That is 12 weeks, two hours every week. That's 24 hours. Okay, that's a whole day. Yeah, out of your 365 days, it's a whole day, and it's broken up over 12 weeks. Okay, so that's the need they need. Two hours every Wednesday night for twelve weeks. Okay, they also need to be around women who are going to love them, support them, tell them that God has a plan and purpose for their baby, that they should choose life, whether they're going to be the mama or whether they're going to have the baby given up for adoption. They're going to choose life. We're going to support them, love them. They need to be around um, the Word of God, this curriculum, telling them that that they can be in the kingdom here and now. That Jesus died for them, and that they can start participating in His kingdom rule and reign right now, here. This is their needs, right? So we add up all their needs. It's a lot. They need a lot, right? They need a baby shower. They need car seats. They need all these things. Here's the need, okay? And then I'm gonna minus my personal interest, which is, well, it's Wednesday, and that's like my night that I drop the kids off, and then I go to a coffee shop and read for two hours, or that's the night I do Netflix, or that's the night I go to my spin class, or whatever. Like, I'm subtracting my personal interest, and then what am I left with? I'm left with, oh, what's gonna most benefit others? I'm gonna show up and serve. Now we can do this formula, this calculation, not just in ministries, not just at church, but in our own homes with your family, with your spouse. Oh, God starts speaking to you about their needs. They need forgiveness. My spouse needs forgiveness. My spouse needs grace. My spouse needs encouragement. He needs me to pray for him. He needs me to be there for him. He needs a night where we go out and I just am focused and fully present. Like I see his needs minus my personal interest. I'm gonna show up and serve my spouse or your kids. What are your kids' needs? Are you paying attention to what they need and taking out your interest and in showing up and serving in humility? Count others more significant than yourselves. This is dying to yourself daily. This is like those rights. And like those opinions and those interests that you wanna cling to, it's choosing to let them go, to empty yourself, to take on the mind, the thoughts and the feelings of Jesus. Stoop and stoop and then stoop some more. Okay, number two, we're gonna concern ourselves with small things. Like, wait, I thought we weren't supposed to, like, don't be bothered by the small things. No, concern yourself with small things. Look at it again, Philippians 2, 4. It says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, this doesn't mean that we can never look out for our own interest, but we should not only look out for our own interest. Amen? Okay, so oftentimes I think that we miss out on several opportunities every day to practice humility because we're looking for the big Deeds. We are looking for the noticeable needs. We are looking for those interests that um, are definitely going to be praised, noticed, applauded, and we're going to receive a big thank you card because we did that thing, like a big glaring need, like showing up for Embrace Grace Childcare. Like that's noticeable, and you're going to get a thank you, you know, all of that. We're looking for those big, obvious things. But I think when Paul writes that we need to look out for the interests of others, he isn't only talking about those big, obvious needs. He's also talking about the little things. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to tell us to look out for them. Like you got paying attention, look out for it. It's not going to be obvious. It's not going to be glaring. This reminds me of what Therese of Lisieux coined this phrase. She says uh, that we've been talking a lot about at our house this summer. It's called the little way a little way, or the ministry of the small things. What's the ministry of the small things? She says, in short, is to seek out, to seek out, to look out for the menial job, the little job. It's to welcome unjust criticisms, to be humble and just be like, you know what? I don't have to have the last word. You know what? I'm just gonna unwelcome, I'm gonna welcome this unjust criticism. It's to befriend those who annoy us. It's to help those who are un grateful she was convinced that these little things please jesus more than the great big glaring needs of recognized holiness now what i love about the ministry of small things is that's available to anyone and it's available every day like some of you guys are waiting for a ministry moment like i can't wait to go back to mexico next year and then i'm just going to be so humble no don't wait for the big obvious glaring need in mexico you show up right here and right now every day there's an opportunity to practice the ministry of the small things. Great, big, lofty, noticeable ministry moments only happen once in a while, but daily we can participate in the ministry of the small things. We can give a smile to that nagging coworker. We can listen attentively to somebody who is talking about something that is boring us to death. We can be present. We can be attentive. We can empty the dishwasher when it's not our night. We can bring up the trash bins and not have to be like, hey, did you see I brought up the trash cans? Why didn't you even say thank you about it? We can express kindness without making a fuss. Okay, we think that tiny little things, the ministry of the little things, that this isn't worth mentioning, which is precisely what makes it so valuable. She says, they are unrecognized conquest over selfishness. How many want to have some little conquest over selfishness in your life? I do, right? And this is a way that we can do this. This is a way we can, like, we can, uh, what was the word? We can renounce self-centeredness. This is an unrecognized conquest over selfishness. In other words, we're never going to receive a thank you for it, which is exactly what we want, because that forces us to be content that Jesus saw and that helps me to check my motives. Was I doing that just so he would say thank you? Or was I doing that because I want to stoop and stoop and stoop? And I want to have the same thoughts and feelings of Jesus. Why was I doing it? What was the reason I what was my motive behind it? To get noticed, to get applauded, or because I want to be like my Savior? Okay, so we're going to calculate one another. We're going to concern ourselves with small things. Be obedient. Look out for the interest of others. And then number three, this is the most important piece. The most important piece, it's cooperate with God. Cooperate with God. Okay, taking on the same mind of Jesus, living a life worthy, in a manner worthy of the gospel. This seems like a really like impossible mountain to climb. Like, is this even possible? I don't know, seems hard. But Jesus said his yoke is easy, right? He said his burden is light. So why does this feel kind of heavy and impossible? What gives? Okay, look at this, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Paul, continuing his thoughts. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation. Okay, salvation here is talking about sanctification. Salvation in scripture is represented three ways. There's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification, okay? I like to remember it as past, present, and future. Okay, justification is what happens when you make Jesus the Lord of your life and you come to him by grace through faith. I, faith, I have decided to follow you. You are justified right then and there. Christ's righteousness becomes your righteousness. Whew. Okay, then there's sanctification, which is in the present, right now. This is being transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to the next. And then there's glorification, which will happen in the future when you die or when Jesus returns. Now, in this verse, when it says work out your salvation, it is referring to sanctification. Someone say sanctification. Sanctification. Okay, it's a big word, right? But here's what it boils down to. Sanctification is the lifelong process of the pursuit of holiness. It is the process of God's continuing work in His beloved. Or here is how I put it to my kids. Sanctification is working out what God has worked in. It's working out what God has worked in. Now, this may sound a little intimidating. Again, like, okay, I got to work out what God's working. What does that mean? This actually one of the most encouraging verses in all of scripture. One, it lets us know that we are expected to put effort into growing spiritually. Like sanctification is not a passive thing. It is not something that just happens to you. You don't just automatically go from one degree of glory to the next. You don't automatically just become transformed into the image of Jesus. It's not a passive thing. Paul says it's a pursuit, it's a contest, it's a fight, it's a race. And maybe you're thinking, well, what about grace? Like this sounds like you want me to work for my salvation. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. And that's not what this verse is saying. Okay, it doesn't say work for your grace. Grace is opposed to earning. And this isn't about earning anything. You cannot earn your salvation. This isn't about earning. Grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. And this is talking about effort. To grow up, to mature in Christ takes effort. So it's not a passive thing. And then we also see that it's not a casual thing. Sanctification is not a casual thing. Like we just take it lightly. It is to be done with fear and trembling. We've got to take it seriously. Why? Well, think about it. God, God has worked. God has worked the most wonderful, the most priceless, the most matchless gift. He's worked it into us, his very life. Zoe life. It's no longer Christ who lives. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He has worked his very life, his nature, his character, his spirit. He has worked all of that into me. And now it's up to me not to just casually go about sanctification, but I'm gonna go about it with fear and trembling. Lord, I want to work out the life of Christ that you have worked into me. Okay, so it's not passive, it's not casual. And then the good news is we don't have to do it alone. Look at it again, work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Like, let's just take a second here And try, try to let that sink in. God is at work in you. Would you just put your hand over your heart? Would you say, God is at work in me. Let that not be lost on us. He is at work in us right now. Now, what's he at work doing? What's he doing? He's producing in us holiness. He's producing in us humility right now. As one commentator says, he is relentlessly bringing about spiritual maturity. Now we have to understand he's not doing the work for us. Like he's not gonna work it out, take over our body and make us make these choices. But here's what he is doing. He is supplying the power that we need To do what? He's supplying the power, for instance, that we need to stoop and to stoop and to stoop lower and deeper, yet to be humble. He is uh, not only giving us the power, He's not only enabling us to do this, but He's giving us the desire. He's giving us the want to. He's he's working on our will so that we want to stoop, so that we want to show up and serve, so that we want to walk in humility. He gives us the desire, the want to, and then He gives us the empowerment to walk it out. He's worked his mind into you. His thoughts and his feelings are in you. Now it's up to us to work those out. Why would he do this? That seems like so much work to be working in all of us on our will, which we're stubborn, working on us to empower. Why would he do this? Because he delights to see his image restored in people. He delights to see his image restored in you and you going out and filling the earth and filling the community and filling your school and your home with his image. He delights in you being an icon of his power and his presence here in the earth. He delights in you living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It says he does this for, not for you, he does this for his good pleasure. God is already at work in you. He's just waiting for your cooperation. Like he is initiating right now, he's initiating transformation in you. He is stimulating right now in you, this desire to be like him. I wanna be like you, Lord. He's initiating this desire to have the same mind as him. He's stimulating this desire to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. He is at work in you right now, inspiring you to acts of humility, to show up and serve, to pray, to forgive, He's inspiring you to seek first his kingdom. And he is providing you all that you need to act on, to do the things that he is initiating, stimulating and inspiring you to do. He's enabling you to do it. Now it's up to you to respond. And a great time to practice, a great time to strengthen that responding muscle is in altar ministry every week at church. This is what this moment is all about. This moment is us choosing to respond, to respond, to cooperate. What God has been doing, what He's been at work doing since we walked into this place. What He's been at work doing as we've read Philippians this week. What He's at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is a time where you can practice, okay, I'm gonna respond. I'm gonna respond to this, but what happens? as we get to this moment and people start to get restless and they just wanna go home and they just want, they got stuff to do today, or we get to this moment and we start to do exactly what Paul tells us not to do. Look at this next in Philippians 2, 14 through 15. He's just told us to to work out our salvation because God is at work in us, both to to will and to work for our good pleasure. And then he says, do all things without grumbling, or disputing now i was wednesday years old when i discovered that this is not talking about just generally not complaining about how your day is going don't gripe Don't don't grumble don't complain i always kind of thought it just meant like have a happy attitude all of the time and we should not grumble not complain okay but this isn't that's not what this is talking about that's not what paul is talking about like just don't gripe because it's hot today no, it's more than that. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. What things is he talking about? He's talking about doing all of the things that God is at work within you doing, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, without arguing, without arguing with who about it, without arguing with him about it, without giving him a million reasons why you can't, why you shouldn't, why it won't work for you, why you can't change, why you won't, why, why you'll just do this in your private time. I don't need to come to the altar, God, it's fine. You know who you're working, you know who you're arguing against. You know who you're complaining, murmuring, having these little side conversations. Like he's trying to talk to you about this and you're like, it's okay, God, I really, you know, I don't really need to do this. You complain and you argue with him. Paul says, don't do that. Do all things without grumbling or arguing. Don't give him the reasons why you can't. Don't have an argumentative spirit against the Lord, what he's at work and you doing, working on your will at work in you, working to help you, will and work both for his good pleasure. We need to cooperate with what he's doing, with what he's saying, with glad submission and with cheerful obedience. And then, then we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. We got to train ourselves to respond both to will and to work because it delights in him when we look like him if you would stand your feet and i'm going to give you a chance today to just like every week altar ministry team go ahead and come forward and this is a moment where you can practice responding you can strengthen that that muscle of cooperation with God, of responding to what God is doing, initiating in you, enabling you to do. Okay, so I've got three things that you may, you may want to respond to. Maybe he's initiating you right now, salvation, that you wanna make him the Lord of your life. Like you thought it was just about a free ticket to heaven and, and, and you didn't know about the kingdom and you've been worshiping other kings and you're like, no, I want the sin, the power of sin broken off of my life and I want to worship the one true king and I'm going to lay my life down at his feet today. You know, if that's in you, he's initiating salvation in you. Now you respond to that. Maybe you're here today and he's initiating a desire to confess some areas of pride, of selfishness, of entitlement, of resentment. And he's, he's initiating, he's stimulating this desire to come forward and confess and not just be like, Hey, I'm struggling, but to confess to say whatever you're confessing, even if it's shameful, even if it's if it, it, if it's if it's gonna hurt you. This is how we share in the sufferings of Christ. We confess and then we're healed. Don't argue, don't have an argumentative spirit with what the Lord is wanting to do in your life. And maybe the third thing is you just wanna pray for more of God's kingdom to come in some specific area. You need to come up and say, I wanna pray that more of everything, exactly how God wants it to be, in my marriage? Would you pray for my marriage? I wanna partner with somebody. Let's agree together where two or three are gathered. So whatever he's saying, maybe it's nothing to do with that, but you know, you're picking up on what he's doing, what he's at work doing. Do you believe that church that he's at work in you? Do you believe God's word? I believe God's word. I believe he is working in everybody in this room right now. How will you respond? Maybe it's through worship. Maybe it's through kneeling. Maybe it's confessing to somebody next to you. Maybe it's coming down for prayer. But respond in some way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every person who needs prayer. God, that we would have ears to hear. That we would be sensitive to what you are at work right now, actively doing in our hearts. You are working in us, Lord. Let us respond. Let us cooperate with you. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for Newsong Church OKC in the App Store.